What is up, fellow Jake Paulers? My name is Carter, and welcome back to the seventh episode of Elrod's Educational Lectures. In today's episode, we will talk more about industrialization. Thank you, and make sure to sub the PewDiePie. So, um, we're going to today talk about several different things. We're going to finish up kind of this... Introduction of industrialization, uh, mainly focus on some of the social tension, I guess is a good word, that starts to arise during this time period. How do you have a question? I'm like, one line So, uh, we're going to introduce some of the social tension that, that starts arising during this time period, um, and then we're going to get out into expansion into the Americas and see some of the different. Um, roles that start popping up here and all these different things. So, um, where we left off, we're getting to some of the social, uh, uh, I guess, changes with the social structures here. And um, we talked about some of the happenings and some of the stuff that's going on at this time. Now, one thing that we see, is one of the biggest impacts, obviously we see a lot of political impact, impacts, um, economic impacts, a lot of different things there. We talked about some of those yesterday. But society changes a lot as well. We're going to see a couple different things happen. As we get into the 1800s, we've kind of turned this 1800s, this 19th century, I guess, as an era of the bourgeoisie for a couple different reasons. We already know that this middle class, upper middle class, bourgeoisie class has started to really exert itself politically because of because of these revolutions. The French Revolution instigated by the bourgeoisie and they start to really consolidate some power there. Uh, the Latin American Revolution by this upper middle class Creole type group and uh, the American Revolution with this bourgeoisie class. So we're starting to see political influences uh, being expanded here by this bourgeoisie class. But when you look at industrialization and the changes that come with this, this is really going to be a huge um, boost for the bourgeoisie class as well. Because we're getting into a, an urban movement that's away from the aristocratic groups that's really not going to include the aristocratic groups as much. And that's going to provide opportunities for smart, hardworking, intelligent, educated people that can rise to the top. And that's what's going to be, I mean, that describes the bourgeoisie class right there. So we're getting into this era of the bourgeoisie and it's really going to be dominated by this group, this industrialization movement. So as we get here, this middle class, the role of the middle class here is really starting to well, it's going to grow, but it's really going to diversify itself as well. Um, by the 20th century, we're kind of looking more at the middle classes than the middle class, because it has everybody from the super wealthy groups to people that are kind of just a shade above a worker in some cases. All right, so the middle class is right here. Now, when we get to the lower class, this probably grows in numbers the most, because the working class is going to be, well, it's going to start to incorporate a huge, huge percentage of the population. And as population is growing and booming at this time, a lot of those are going to join this working class. 
um, or be part of this working class. So we're going to see the working class probably growing in numbers the most, and the middle class growing in diversity the most, and numbers as well, but not as much as the lower class there, okay? And then you still have your upper class that's your aristocratic group and those kind of things, but we're really going to see a decline in the role of the aristocracy. They've already started to lose, well, they've, lo they've lost their feudal privileges with the French Revolution and all these kind of things that we talked about last chapter. But they're also going to start to lose a little bit of their political influence. These republics are built really to enfranchise the bourgeoisie groups and start to drown out the aristocratic groups. They're not completely gone out of political favor by any means. And they're not even necessarily going to, you know, we're not talking about them going to a life of poverty by any means. And they still really own their lands and they do all this kind of stuff. So they're not really struggling that much, but they're losing a little bit more of their power and influence. So that's really the role that we're going to see with the aristocratic classes. All right, so we are seeing a declining political power and those kind of things. And... Like we said, the industrialization movement is an urban movement that is bypassing the aristocratic classes. And kind of by nature is against the aristocratic classes. Because the aristocratic wealth and power is in their land and in the agricultural and that kind of stuff. So that's what we're going to see here. So the middle class is on the rise. And we've talked about the diversity of this. And you can kind of refer back to this a little bit later if you need. But we have several different levels of this increasingly diverse middle class. All right. Now, the values of this bourgeoisie or upper middle class and those kind of things, we know about their educated, um, hardworking nature, those kind of things, very thrift economically speaking, and very much in favor of private property, free market system, free trade, um, Adam Smith style economics, laissez-faire, that all describes the bourgeoisie class, which is why we're going to see that being the mentality of the 1800s as opposed to a mercantilism of the 16, 1700s approach. Okay? Um, as far as women in the middle class, we have more of a domestic role. Um, the What's going to be known as the cult of domesticity is going to be introduced during this time period, and that's really just talking about the role that the middle class women have as far as being really in the home, raising kids, educating kids, and those kind of things, not really in the workplace. These bourgeois women particularly are, you know, the husband makes a good amount of money, they're well off, they're wealthy, and the women do other things, mainly in the home, maybe some charitable activities, stuff like that. But the cult of domesticity is kind of the role that we see here with bourgeois middle class women. Right? Working class is going to be a little bit different. The working class is going to become a huge number of the people. And by the late 1800s, really a force of the population that cannot be ignored. And we'll get to that when we talk about politics in just a little bit, and a little bit later here. But we're going to start to see this class growing and after 1850s, organizing in some cases, 
into a political force as well, which is something that is completely unheard of in the late 1700s. And one thing that, well, I guess the French Revolution tries for a little bit, and it doesn't work out well. Well, we're going to see it manifest itself a little bit differently in the late 1800s with the socialist movements and those kind of things. But we know about some of the situation of the working class. They are plagued by several different things. One, they work long, hard hours. They might have a 12, 14, 16 hour day in some cases. And there's really not a, um, there's really no regulation on this whatsoever. They work in these cold burning, smoke filled factories that, or in coal mines and these things that are very unsanitary, unhealthy. There's a lot of sickness, disease, a lot of early deaths in some cases. And it's not a very good situation. And the living situations are not very good either. Um, they are probably the most victimized by this growing urbanization that's taking place because they're the ones that are flocking to the cities. And the cities aren't ready for this kind of growth. The cities are drastically trying to keep up. They're building these bare walled buildings that ha don't have any kind of sanitation or sanitary codes, any kind of running water or anything like that. So it's a very unclean environment there too and they're getting sick. And those kind of things there too. So they're the most victimized by this growing urbanization and industrialized movement. And um, we don't really see much protection for them until the second half of the 1800s. The government will step in in most all the European cases, and United States cases in some cases, um, where they will create sanitary, maybe housing conditions by uh, putting housing codes in, or factory acts that raise the, the age of some of the kids that are working there. Because kids are working in here as young as six years old in some cases. Because when you hire people, sometimes you'll hire the entire family early on. Later on, the population's even too big to do that. But if you hire a person, a man or something, you might hire his wife and his kids. And they're working as early as six years old. Later on, we're going to start to see factory acts that are passed where you know, it raises that age to nine or to 14 or to different things. And then they have to start educating these kids at a certain hour. But it's difficult. And these kids are exposed to these kind of conditions early, early, early lives and they grew up the whole thing. So that makes for a difficult situation there. Women are working, but as we get later in the 1800s, the jobs are getting scarce and the women are the first ones to lose their jobs. And so um, one of the, the working class women, they have a couple different things they can do. Mostly they turn to either working in maybe the bourgeoisie's house as domestic servant type roles or prostitution which is legal in a lot of different places. And that's one of the major jobs for the working class women. So it's a lot different role for working class women than what we're gonna see with um, middle class bourgeoisie women, okay? So we know about the situation for the working class and that kind of stuff. They're gonna try to start having some organization. Um, we're gonna see a few different union movements that form in Europe. These are outlawed in a lot of cases early on and then they start 
accepting these as we get to the middle of the 1800s. But this is some of the struggle that we're seeing between the establishment, which is the government, which is controlled by the bourgeoisie at this time, and the bourgeoisie are these factory owners and those kind of things. And so they're going to try to crack down on these union movements because that means they're going to have to start investing more money into making the lives of the workers better. That's going to hurt their bottom line and all that kind of stuff. So we're going to start to see that struggle picking up. And we'll talk more about that in just a little bit here. All right? And that's all part of that union movement. Now, as far as economically speaking here, we know about Adam Smith. I don't think we need to talk too much more about him with laissez-faire, free market economy. That is the mentality of the 1800s. And it really is going to be until, really until the Great Depression in the 1930s. We'll talk more about that when we get to Unit 6. But the bourgeois mentality and really the entire industrialized world mentality up until the Great Depression is laissez-faire, leave it alone. Which is why the Great Depression, one of the reasons why it gets so out of hand is because there's no government regulations by that time really to stop it. And they're going to have to kind of redefine their approach to economics, and we'll talk about that later on. But for now, it's Adam Smith, laissez-faire. We've talked about Malthus a little bit, but uh, Thomas Malthus is really, well, he's trying to raise awareness to the problem that population growth is already having, he says, and could have in the future, and that availability of resources is going to be an issue. This will be a driving force as we get to imperialism here in a couple chapters. This mentality. Alright, and Ricardo with his iron law of wages um, is along the same lines there, trying to link the two there with economics and uh, the population growth and those kind of things. But I'd say Adam Smith, he's the big name to remember there with economics. All right, so and by the middle of the 19th century, the situation for the workers is deteriorating pretty quickly. And there's a few people that are trying to point this out. People like um, Friedrich Engels, Karl Marx. Some of these people are writing about the condition about the conditions of the working class and uh, trying to draw some kind of awareness and give some help to them because it's it's getting bad particularly I mean it's already been bad in England for a few decades because they kind of started this whole thing but this industrialization process by the time Marx is writing has spread as far as Germany in a lot of cases uh, across Belgium Netherlands France United States and remember, it kind of spreads according to proximity from England. You kind of drop a stone in the water, you see the waves spread out of there. Well, the center of that would be like England, and then it spreads out to there. So it kind of hits France, Belgium, that kind of stuff. But by this time, it's got all the way into Central Europe. And uh, we're starting to see a growing working class and deteriorating conditions and those kind of things. So Marx is one of the more famous of these writers. And he is influential because he starts a whole political movement that we'll get into in a little bit that splinters into all different factions. But he writes about the class struggle that's, that is existing of the day. And he says, you know, if you look at history and all these kind of things, all history is is really a big class struggle. And it manifests itself in different ways. 
it, you know, he talks of you know, the Romans had the patricians and the, the plebeians and the slaves and that kind of stuff there. In feudalism, it was the aristocrats and the peasants. Well, of his day, he talks about the class struggle of his day is the bourgeoisie, which is why we keep using that word there, and the proletariat, which are the workers. All right? And he says the bourgeoisie have accomplished more than any other class in history. He talks about how they, uh, they're dominating government, they're producing so many different things, they're building these big, massive structures. They are out there killing it, crushing it. And they're doing this at the cost, or with the exploitation, of the proletariat class. And he says this can only go on for so long. Inevitably, he, he talks about this inevitable process, the proletariat will eventually realize what's going on and will eventually organize and overthrow this bourgeoisie class in a big revolution. And the result of this revolution is going to be a redistribution of all wealth, of all land, of all property, of all means of production, you know, factories and all this kind of stuff. And eventually the end goal is this communal society. Now what does that mean with a communal society? You know, this equal type of mentality, right? So, and that's where this idea of a communist revolution is going to take place. And he says it's inevitable because this class struggle can only go on for so long. Now, we'll talk about different views of this later on because what Marx talks about is going to be different than like what Vladimir Lenin and Joseph Stalin and how it manifests itself differently later on. So we'll talk about different that. But this really is starting to talk about the need for change for the workers for a couple different reasons. One, because we're either trying to avoid a revolution, so we have to try to bring awareness to these workers that way, or in favor of the revolution, all right? But this really changes the mentality going into the late 1800s, because what we're going to start to see here is a lot of different socialist diff parties and groups popping up in different areas. Some are communist revolutionary in nature, saying we've got to make this change quick. Some are evolutionary or democratic in nature. The biggest movement that's going to be in the late 1800s is going to be the social democratic movement, meaning we're going to achieve this type of society and these changes through democratic means, which means we have to include the workers in the government. So we're going to see this splintering off in sometimes different ways. Um, obviously, this is going to be big in places like when we get to the 20th century, Russia has their big revolution, and China has their biggest revolution, their big revolution there. So we'll see this mentality bigger in the 20th century than the 19th century. In the 19th century, they're going to really take a shot at social democratic changes and um, using the government to make these changes. Some of these areas are a little more needed, more radical. So. So the socialist agenda is going to look somewhat like this. They're going to try to make these changes. If you're looking at a list here, um, increasing the fact or uh, bettering the situation in the factories, the working conditions, limiting the work days, providing some kind of health care, health insurance for people that are injured, um, 
some kind of pension plan or some kind of something to take care of the workers. Um, bettering living conditions. So all of these things that you're seeing here would be part of this socialist agenda. If you look at these socialist parts. And they start popping up everywhere. You have the the SDP in Germany becomes a big famous uh, socialist there. Uh, the Fabian Society and the Labour Party in England. The uh, Second International in France. You have all these different groups all across uh, the Mensheviks and the Bolsheviks in Russia. You don't really see this happening in the United States, though. The United States has kind of a different approach to socialism. Um, there's not really any major socialist movements. It's always kind of been seen as taboo in the United States because of several different things. We'll talk more about that when we get to the United States a little later on. But that's one difference that we see between the two regions. All right? Now, let's go ahead and start taking, uh, taking a look at the Americas here. And I'd like to get through Latin America if we can today. So we'll be moving still fairly quickly here. Now, let's start with the United States, because the United States is a little bit, it's very similar to what we're going to see with Western Europe. It has a lot of ties there with Western Europe. It's not that far removed from being part of the British Empire, right? So they're going to have a lot of ties with what we see with the Western European industrial movement. And really, they are in this immediate wave of industrialization. You know, the United Kingdom is first. Late 1700s, they started this whole industrial process. But a couple of decades later, we're going to see it spread. France, Belgium, Netherlands, that area, and the United States, which seems a little bit weird because they're not in that close of proximity to England. They're all the way across the Atlantic Ocean. But economically, culturally, politically, still very tied in with England. Obviously, there's some animosity there. Revolutionary War, War of 1812, that kind of stuff. But when it comes to industrialization, they have a lot of the same ties that England had that started the whole process there. So um, we're going to start to see industrialization popping up in the United States where the British colonies used to be. New England colonies, they tried to start some of this while they were still colonies of the United Kingdom. But through different navigation acts and mercantile policies, the British kind of outlawed that from happening. Well, now they're free of that yoke of mercantilism, and they can pursue manufacturing and factories, and they already have a well-developed shipping industry from their mercantile days. They have raw materials like cotton and some of these other things, so they already have, they're already well on their way. And so, it's kind of a natural progression for them to start pretty soon after the British do. You know, the United States is about three decades or so after that. All right? So they have several things to their favor that even the British don't have. They have a very large area and room to expand. So when you're talking about people flooding in, we actually have land available for that. We have pretty large coal and iron de um, deposits which is great for starting an industrial society. The market's getting big. You know, the 1800s is kind of the century of immigration for the United States anyways. 
And one thing that the United States is going to have that, well, none of the Latin American countries are going to have, that even in Europe you're not going to really see a lot of, is political stability. You know, this constitution that is still pretty fresh and pretty new at this time is going to prove to be a very stable form of government going through the 18 and 1900s. Whereas in France, they're going to go through, goodness, they're on their sixth republic right now. Uh, and they started theirs even about a decade after we started ours, right? Um, so they're going to go through several changes. They're going to go, even the 1800s alone, they're going to go through a couple more republics and another, another Napoleon goes through there actually, Napoleon III. And so they're going to go through several things. Germany is going to be new on the scene. They're going to go through an empire and then a republic. We're going to see some political instability there. The British are probably, you know, they're the model of stability, obviously. But um, the United States is going to prove to be a very stable form of government as well. That's going to help foster this industrial process. All right? Coal and iron, those kind of mines there. So, one thing, when we talk about the role of government here, and when you're looking at these different industrial processes, you want to kind of look and see what the role of government is. Because in England, it's going to be somewhat the same as the United States. Kind of a helping hand. The United States government might help a little bit more. But mostly this is an independent bourgeoisie movement or entrepreneurial movement. And then when they need help from the government, they get it. For example, you know, this whole idea of manifest destiny and expanding new land. Well, the government kind of helps foster as we expand. We'll create some of this territory for railroads and for transportation and those kind of things. When we need loans, we can secure loans. When we need to build something here, we can kind of use the government to our favor because this is still a bourgeoisie-led government, so they're the ones that are going to benefit from industrialization. So it's very similar to what we see in England which is different than what we're going to see in other places. Because we know we talked a little bit yesterday, when it comes to Russian, Chinese, Japanese industrialization, it's kind of the opposite of this. This is all state-sponsored, state-mandated industrialization processes. And in Russia and China, very, very, very difficult of processes. Here, it's not quite like that with the United States. And Western European nations. It's a little bit more autonomous, take your time, do it on your own kind of thing. Government will, will help when we need it. Now, the United States, as we get to the second industrial revolution, more of a 20th century phenomenon there, late 1800s, the United States is going to be much more of a leader in this movement than what we see in the first one because this one's going to be centered around things like mass production, assembly lines, interchangeable parts, automobiles, electricity and oil, and all this kind of different uh, plastics and those kind of things. The United States is going to have a much more pioneering role in this than they did in, in the first round of, of this revolution. And um, this is going to really show itself in the cities that are being built, you know, the steel industry. We're going to have these huge industrialists that are going to make these markets very, very large as well, and um, that are really going to foster the growth of these, you know, whether it's railroads or the steel industry or oil or whatever it might be, 
these guys are really going to put the United States industrialization on the map, I guess, for that. I'm not going to say they're going to – the United States really does not take the lead in industrialization until after World War I because late 1800s and going into the 1900s, it's the Germans that are really dominating production, I guess, at that point. So we kind of go through phases. It's British-led up until about 1860, 18, well, 1870s, 1870s to World War I, it's German-led, and then the United States kind of takes over there. And then the Great Depression, everybody kind of goes back to zero. Not zero, they go back a lot. All right, so one thing we see here also, now that we've gone through a revolution with production, well, the next step after transportation and that kind of stuff, consumer revolutions, right? A lot of revolutions thrown at you, I know. But there's a drastic change in the way people consume things, buy things, purchase things. The old mentality of go to a store and create something or buy something and you know this shirt that I have is the only one that is like this it's handmade it's unique that's kind of gone now it's kind of produce things we're going to predict what the demand is put it out in, the sh in a store in a shop in a mall in some kind of department store and let people go shop and buy things that they want more of what we're used to today you know this idea of big malls I guess you guys are more internet shoppers maybe but these ideas of department stores and malls, that really starts here with the Industrial Revolution. That didn't really exist before that. One of the earliest examples of this is the Crystal Palace in London. But we're going to see a lot of these kind of things over across the United States as well and across Western Europe. Now, social classes, they're going to be very similar here in the United States than what we're going to see in places like in Western Europe. A growing middle class and a growing working class, and an increasingly diverse middle class as it grows there too. And the struggle is pretty much the same, not as exaggerated maybe here. You do have a big gap in income and in wealth between the middle class and the lower class, but you don't necessarily see the same type of organizations in the United States that you're gonna see in Western Europe. You are going to see unions and you are going to see organizations like that of workers, but socialism doesn't ever really pick up in the United States. It never really gets a legitimate party. We always are very clinging to our two-party system and we never really see socialism gaining a lot of steam. And really in the 20th century, socialism is seen as very un-American. When you get to the you know the 1950s and that kind of stuff, our biggest enemy is what the Soviet Union, right? The communists of the day, and so communism is seen as an enemy and a, and a I guess antagonizing ideology. So that's something a little bit different. Whereas the European nations, their governments, their constitutions, their republics are growing in this 1800s and 1900s with a pretty decent-sized socialist flair to it, I guess. And that really manifests itself with a lot of the politics of the day today over there. Now, we have aspects of this here. You know, We have aspects of the welfare state. We have aspects of those kind of things that are going to be part of the socialist agenda, but no socialist party. That kind of becomes seen as anti-un-American, I guess, is the best way to say it. 
Okay? And I, a lot of that is because the bourgeoisie wants to make sure that they're left alone to do what they want to do, really, in the 1800s. They still are, are a big, big force there. And then there's kind of the religious aspect of that, too. The United States is seen as a little bit more religious than the Europeans at the time. Because the Enlightenment movement is a lot about taking religion out of things and secularizing. So that's kind of a different thing. There, there's several different reasons there. But for the most part here, and this is something not to overlook either, the United States is not as, the working and living conditions are not quite as bad here. And that's for a couple of reasons. One, urbanization is not as problematic in the United States as it is in Europe. Because these cities are newer, they're planning these cities out for an industrial society, for an industrial world. Whereas some of these cities in Europe, London and Paris and these others, were built back in the Roman Empire days. And so they're feeling a lot more of the strains and those kind of things of urbanization. And the land that's available, there's a lot more of that in the United States, I guess, especially as we start expanding west. And the growth of the economic growth in the United States is pretty big too. So there's not much of a need for socialism. We do see other progressive movement, movements, populist movements, those kind of things, but nothing that really manifests itself like socialism. All right, so United States, very similar to what we see with Western Europe. Latin American countries, different though. Um, if the United States is an example of stability, the Latin American countries are the opposite of this. In the 1800s, we alluded to this a little bit with the revolutions, but we see a series of revolutions in the early half of the 1800s. That's pretty much what's going on in the first three decades in Latin America. So there's a lot of fighting there anyways. And then what kind of governments are being created here? Do you remember? Well, before dictatorships. Who are leading most of these revolutions? And bourgeoisie want what type of government? A republic, right? So they're going to set up some constitutional type governments, some republics, and one by one these fail for a few different reasons. Remember, these guys have no idea how to govern. Not necessarily that they're stupid, not anything like that, but they've never done it before. They are used to a mercantile system where every single aspect of society, politics, economics, down to what you are producing on your farms comes from the Spanish absolutist system or the French absolutist system or whatever, whichever colony you're part of, right? So they're not used to this idea of self-governance and they really don't know how to handle this whole economic trade across the Atlantic Ocean. And they don't really have a part in that anymore because the thing that was linking them to the Atlantic trade is now gone. In most of these cases, it's Spain. So how do you get your niche in the Atlantic trade? How do you create that? They're gonna try to do a couple different things, but there's gonna be a series of chaos, economic struggles, 
political struggles, social struggles that are going to really lead to the end of these republics. And we're going to see them replaced by these military dictatorships. These uh, people called Cadillos come in and pretty much seize power in all of these different republics and really pretty much bring an end to these republics one by one. I can't really think of a republic that succeeds in these Latin American countries that is not taken over by some of these. And this is just to try to bring order to the chaos that these republics have created. Because you remember, there's a lot of issues here. The whole economic system of these Latin American countries was built on mercantilism. The encomienda systems in the Spanish Empire, the hacienda systems, which are pretty much big slave plantations. Well, after these revolutions are done, they're kind of thinking of social change, which would mean an end to the hacienda system. And that's how do you move forward economically if you're destroying the old way? And they have trouble doing that. The United States goes through some of this. Obviously, the United States still has, at that time, slavery in the southern colonies. They don't get rid of the plantation systems there. There's some social struggle there, and obviously there's a big civil war later in the 1800s. So it's not like the United States was immune to these struggles, and they didn't have their own struggles there. But even after the war and everything, and they go through some issues, they're able to resolve these somewhat without a regime change. They got close in some cases, but they didn't. These guys were not able to do that in Latin, across Latin America and those things, all right? Now, the new social structure of what we see, remember, peninsulares are gone. The viceroyalty system is done. So the Creoles are now pretty much the upper class. They're the, the, the higher class there. You have a middle class that might include some of the mestizos, mulattoes from before. Um, you have a lot of the old slaves here, the lower class, that you can maybe equate to peasants working the land now, but who owns the land? Is it the viceroyalties? Is it the Creoles? Is it redistributed? These are the questions that are kind of left unanswered here. So, the question for these Latin American countries is, how do we get involved in this transatlantic economy? Particularly when we're way behind in this industrial process. Well, in Latin America, what have they been good at thus far, economically speaking, in all of these Latin American countries? What? Oh, I thought I heard someone say something. What's been their role? What have they, what's, what have they been producing? Uh, Agricultural things, right? Cash crops, sugar, coffee. Uh, there's stuff that can only be grown in these tropical areas. Bananas become a big one in some cases. Um, there's a lot of different things. They have, well, year-round growing seasons in a lot of these cases. And so that's where their wheelhouse is. That's what they're good at. So they kind of go back to doing that stuff. We have a lot of these exports that are agricultural in nature, you have still some of the mineral deposits. The, the silver mines have, for the most part, shut down, but there's still some that are out there. Um, and there is some mineral wealth coming out of this. But these are still pretty much natural resource raw material type goods, not manufactured items. So their new role in the economy pretty much 
adopts the same role as what their old role was, providing natural resources for these industrialized nations. The difference is it's not necessarily stolen from them, they're trading for it. And it's not that much different than it was before, they just, it's under a different title, it's not mercantilism anymore. So they're trading their raw materials and natural resources for manufactured goods from Europe and from the United States. Okay? And that becomes the role that Latin American countries fill in the transatlantic economy. So the investments that are going to be made into these Latin American countries are by, well, by the United States, by Great Britain, by France, by all these industrialized nations, are pretty much going to be how can we extract these raw materials better? We're going to see some railroads being put in down here, not in an industrialization process, but in a let's get stuff to the coast faster so we can trade it process. <coughs> All right? And then we're going to really start to see economic imperialism in some cases, where United States companies are going to come purchase large areas of land in these Latin American areas to grow whatever they want to sell back at home to dominate that market, whether it's sugar, whether it's coffee, bananas, whatever it might be. All right. Now, as far as urbanization goes, even though these are not really industrialized societies, we're going to see a few factories pop up here and there on the coast. We are going to see a pretty big influx of immigration here. Obviously, we know Europe is getting overpopulated. A lot of these immigrants move to Latin America at the promise of land or jobs. We are going to see a few factories that are brought with this. Maybe some imperialists from Western Europe, they're going to come in and try to do this. We're not going to see overwhelming industrial gains here, but we are going to see population. You know, some of the most populous cities coming into the 20th century, or even today, are on the Latin American coast that um, really started here in the 1800s. So we are going to see a, a huge influx here of people, just like we see in the United States. All right? And the social class that we're going to really start to see, middle class urban dwellers, but there's a lot of lower class peasant and workers in some cases in the mines. But Latin America's economic role pretty much becomes that of exporting natural resources for the to manufacture goods. Okay? And we'll stop there for today. Hello fellow podcasters, my name is Jack and I'd like to thank you for listening to today's episode. Tune in tomorrow to learn more about the industrialization. <laughs>